there's a tweet from Joe Biden where he said, quote, let me be clear, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the problem of inflation. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say tackle the problem of inflation. He said, he said, most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and to improve our energy security. So he's admitting this has nothing to do with inflation, right? This is something that is aimed towards climate-related initiatives and other things that Biden and the Democratic Party want. So I think the Inflation Reduction Act, it's just a euphemism. It has nothing to do with inflation. Yeah, maybe it could be called the Green New Deal. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Thomas Hogan to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act and its similarities to the Green New Deal, as well as the New Deal under FDR in 1933, a historical turning point that changed the course of the U.S. economy, monetary systems, and the role of government to this day. Thomas is senior research faculty at AIER, formerly the chief economist for the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. You can subscribe to my podcast on all platforms and make sure to subscribe to this channel as well as AIER's new channel with short dynamic videos here. All right, well, Tom Hogan, I'm very happy to be with you here today. Thank you for joining me on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be on. So let's talk a little bit about inflation, as if people aren't talking about it enough. <laughs> um, but we know that this is affecting people's lives. Then there's, you know, the whole recession ordeal, changing the definition or using alternative definitions. Basically, like, could you paint a picture for us of what the economy actually looks like right now? So the most recent data we have on inflation is from the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Um, and that was up by... 8.5% over the past 12 months. And people are kind of celebrating because it's a slight decline from 9.1%, although that's still, you know, 8.5% is outrageously high by historical standards. It's the highest rates we've had in 40 years. And so it doesn't seem like it's really anything to get excited about other than it's slightly lower than the previous month. Um, if we look at the other main measure of inflation that is uh, uh, personal consumption expenditures, PCE, uh, that number is up by 6.8% over the last uh, 12 months. And so the way that it's calculated, it's always slightly lower than the CPI number. And so, you know, 6.8 is still very, very high. Again, you know, highest rates in 40 years. The Federal Reserve actually uses core PCE. So that is excluding food and energy prices because food and energy tend to be the most volatile components. Um, and so they want to worry about what's happening over time, the trend over time, rather than being thrown off by any one jump in a particular month. Um, and that number is also lower, uh, but it's still 4.8% over the last 12 months, which is far above the Fed's long-run goal of 2%. And so we're, we're seeing continued inflation that's been happening for years now. Um, despite the Fed claiming that getting inflation down is their top priority, it seems to be still persisting. Well, I'm actually glad that you brought up core PCE. Um, it, was, it was something that I wasn't really sure what it was. So you just said it there. So it's excluding food and energy. But I guess that's the things that, you know, consumers kind of care the most about. 
So what else is left in in the core inflation calculation? Right. Yeah. So so this is a question that I get a lot about、uh, why use core and what is the best measure of inflation. I tend to think、uh, it's a little bit like asking like what's the best tool, a hammer or a screwdriver. Well, they're they're different. We use them for different things, right? And so when we exclude food and energy prices, we might argue, look, those are the things that are really important to consumers. Gas prices is a huge thing that is way up right now. But we wonder if that is something that's going to be representative of what's happening. Gas prices are very volatile, and so if they're up highly in one month, they might be down highly the next month. And so we don't want to let that affect our decision about what we think is really happening in the economy or what's likely to happen going forward. And so for this reason, the Federal Reserve, you know, they look at a, a variety of things like using a variety of tools,、um, but their main measure is core. Core PCE, so that they're looking at again. PCE is personal consumption expenditures. What are individuals really spending their money on? And they want to look at a measure、mm-hmm. that's not going to be up and down month to month, but consistently grow, going at some rate over time. So that's really what they're looking for. Okay.、Um, so something interesting that came out of the White House、uh, recently was Biden saying, "We have. I, I want to tell you one number: zero." We have zero percent, you know,、right. and he was talking about inflation in July. So what what's going on there? Yeah, so that, that that's a little bit misleading the way that he had framed that. So、uh, typically, when we talk about inflation,、um, we talk about what's happened over the last twelve months, like I had previously said about CPI and PCE, so that we can see that any one month is not misrepresenting what's really happening. And in that, this case, one month is misrepresenting what's really happening. And so over the over the last month. In the month of July, there was no increase in prices. They'd gone up a lot over the previous years, but kind of stalled out in that one month. So that might be. It could be the case that this is kind of the peak, and inflation might start coming down. But the thing is, if we look at the previous couple couple of months, they were actually very high. So if we look back to June, the June number was one point three percent in a single month. So that's very much like what we were seeing in the mid two thousands, around twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, when we were getting around one and a half percent per year. Here we got one point three percent in a single month, and so just looking back one、wow. month shows us how bad that was. In the couple of months before that, it was point nine seven percent in May.、Uh, back in March, it was one point two percent. So again, these are like a whole year's worth of inflation in one month.、Um, but in April, it was zero point three percent. So that was a real Really low number, a lot like the zero percent that we're having now. But right after that month, it went right back up and was huge again. And so it's not clear whether this zero percent month really means anything, whether inflation is peaked and going going to decline, or whether it's going to shoot up again like it did after the April number. So not really、uh, representative to say we have zero inflation right now.、Um, but we'll have to see if it if it comes down next or continues to stay high. Yeah, I guess what matters to people is how much does it cost them to live? How much does it cost them to make their purchases? What does the picture of their individual lives look like? And not these kind of political narratives.、Um, but obviously, this is helpful as a political narrative to say, "Hey, things are getting better." You know, I guess that's what he was trying to say. It's zero percent inflation, but it's funny because at the same time, there's the Inflation Reduction Act. So. If inflation is no longer a problem, I don't know why we would need one. But but what exactly is that act? What 
what's in there. Yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act uh, really has nothing to do with inflation. Um, there are some some spend um, some big spending increases that are going to be mostly on climate change initiatives. I think the total spending in the bill is uh, 437 billion, and 369 billion of that is going to climate related programs. Uh, there's also some tax hikes that they're planning to raise taxes on corporations. They're planning to uh, have the IRS hire a lot new uh, a lot of new auditors to try to get people to yeah. you know pay their taxes more. Um, and so this bill really has nothing to do with inflation at all. It's just one of these pleasant names, a, few, a euphemism to make it sound good to people. Um, it's like in the Ayn Rand book, the, the Anti-Dog-Eat-Dog Act, right? That they're, they're trying to make it sound yes. nice when it's really something that is, that is uh, not good at all. And, and you can see that from some of the comments. I, I liked, uh, there's a tweet from Joe Biden where he said, Quote, let me be clear, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the problem of inflation. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say tackle the problem of inflation. He said, he said, most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and to improve our energy security. So he's admitting this has nothing to do with inflation, right? This is something that is wow. aimed towards climate-related initiatives and other things that Biden and the Democratic Party want. So I think the Inflation Reduction Act, it's just a euphemism. It has nothing to do with inflation. Yeah, maybe it could be called the Green New Deal. It's largely following the Green New Deal. I mean, it's it's nowhere near as inclusive of inclusive. The Green New Deal was a was a giant outrageous plan um, that included a, a lot of things that were really just pipe dreams and not anything that was that was going to happen, um, but was meant to sort of move the goalposts. And in this case, they've gotten mm-hmm. they've gotten many programs that are related to climate change uh, or I don't know if they're actually related to climate change at all, uh, but they're at least being framed that way as sort of green programs and, and uh, clean energy programs and things. And so, you know, who knows if those things will make any difference at all. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's being sold as a climate bill, even though it's named the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, it doesn't really seem to bother, um, you know, people who are politically aligned with that or ideologically aligned with that. Um, but I find I find it kind of outrageous that they would call it the Inflation Reduction Act. And it really clearly has only to do with, you know, build back better, essentially. And um, yeah, the funny, it kind of makes me think. Go ahead. Sorry. The funny thing is that they're not even pretending, right? They're not even pretending that this is yeah. actually about inflation. I mean, Biden's quote makes it clear this is aimed at uh, climate and energy security and nothing to do with inflation at all. And so it's pretty weird that you can yeah. continue to claim that the name is even representative of anything in the bill when, when they're talking about it uh, as if it has nothing to do with inflation. You know, it just has to do with tax hikes and more spending. Well, people always tell you what they're going to do, and sometimes you just need to listen. Um, this this makes me think of FDR and the New Deal, and uh, there were a bunch of things there that he said that he was going to do that he did as well. You know, everybody is going to pay their fair share. Taxes, after all, are the dues that we pay for the privilege of membership in an organized society. And as society becomes more civilized, government national and state and local, is called on to assume more obligations to its citizens. 
The privileges of membership in a civilized society have vastly increased in modern times. But I am afraid we have many who still do not recognize their advantages and want to avoid paying their dues. On the one hand, there has been a vast majority of citizens who believe that the benefits of democracy should be extended and who are willing to pay their fair share to extend them. And on the other hand, there has been a small but powerful group which has fought the extension of these benefits because it did not want to pay a fair share of their cost. You look at this new Inflation Reduction Act and they're hiring all these tax collectors and FDR did some similar things there as well. He also decoupled from the gold standard. So can you paint a picture for our audience of, of what it looked like the New Deal under FDR? Sure, the, the New Deal was, uh, like the Green New Deal, such a huge and expansive program uh, that was intended to really sort of change the, the nature of government and the involvement of government in uh, the U.S. economy. Um, and largely it did that. Uh, there was a huge increase in government spending and, and many uh, different types of programs that were implemented under that deal. Um, but even though it was, it was partly about spending, there were also a lot of regulations that really interfered uh, with the way the economy functioned. And a lot of them were completely contrary to what an, uh, economists would think are good ideas. So, for example, they, they really misunderstood uh, how prices worked and what caused higher prices. They had in mind at the time that high prices were going to be good for producers and good for farmers, and therefore they should try to raise prices. Um, and so what they did was they encouraged farmers to plow under and destroy their crops. They encouraged uh, people to uh, d kill their cows and livestock and pigs and chickens. And how could that possibly be good for people, right? The, the idea, what they thought was that this is going to be good for, for prices um, and good for, for farmers and producers. But the truth is, high prices are good for them when people are buying lots of stuff, when it's a problem of too much demand, not a problem of too little supply. I mean, it's crazy to think mm -hmm. that when people are starving, that we should be destroying food, that we should be destroying livestock and killing livestock and just throwing it away. It's crazy to think that that's going to make people better off. And so a lot of the New Deal programs were, were just completely outrageous from an economic standpoint, but also from a regular human well-being standpoint that were yeah. harmful to many, many Americans. And it's one of the reasons that AIER was, was founded. We were founded in 1933 as part of a backlash against the New Deal and the progressive ideas at that time. And so we've been proud for almost 90 years now to be working against those ideas that are that are terrible for Americans. Yeah, you can actually go back on AIR's website and you can read those first publications and they're all about the New Deal. It's really interesting for any of our listeners who want to go and read that. Um, you can draw a lot of parallels, certainly. Um, uh, but yeah, the, these are bad things for people, you know, and as you said too, personally as well, economically, but personally, like, you know, going and killing your livestock isn't going to be good for um, you know, your spirit <laughs> either. When, when, when Americans were starving across the country, the government thought it was a good idea to destroy their food. 
it's outrageous. It's, it's crazy that anyone would think that that would be a good idea, but the people in charge of the government just thought they knew what was best for everyone, and it turns out they were wrong. And I think many of them continue to believe that today, and I think we believe still today that they're wrong. And so we're going to continue to push back against those ideas. Well, it's funny because you also mentioned that it's almost 90 years now uh, for AIER and almost 90 years since the New Deal. And um, there are many people who talk about cycles, right? And what we see as like socioeconomic cycles. And there is a kind of lifetime, you know, an 87, 90 year cycle that happens where you see that history starts to kind of rhyme and it starts to repeat and these kind of uh, things are happening again now. Um, so basically what happened after after this, uh, this New Deal happened, there was also an executive order, I believe, that came out to essentially steal people's gold. Yes, that's right. So in 1933, the United States went off the gold standard. Prior to 1933, uh, the U.S. dollars that were created by the Federal Reserve, um, and even before the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, you know, dollars had been redeemable for gold. And up to 1933, even the ones created by our central bank were redeemable for gold. You could take in a U.S. dollar and they would give you gold. The, the bank or the, the Federal Reserve Bank would give you a piece of gold for your dollar. And so it was tied to gold so that the government couldn't create inflation um, and couldn't destroy the value of the currency. But that changed in 33. The government wanted to inflate the currency. They couldn't do it on the gold standard. And so they just ended the gold standard. And they did it in a particularly harmful way by confiscating all the gold in the United States. By executive order, FDR ordered that Americans could no longer hold private gold. Only small amounts for jewelry or coin collections were allowed to be kept. Everything else had to be brought into the central bank, and you would trade your gold for U.S. paper dollars that were no longer redeemable for, for anything. Um, and so the, the central government, on a presidential executive order, confiscated people's private property and took us off of the gold standard that provided a constraint on the government's activities, a constraint on the central banks being able to issue new currency. And after that time, we went off the gold standard. Um, and we stayed on an international gold standard until 1971. But then again, we went off the international gold standard that was part of the Bretton Woods International uh, System. We went off it on an executive order by President Nixon. And again, um, left a situation where the government was being constrained to one where they were totally unconstrained and could issue all the fiat paper money that they wanted to. Oh, my goodness. Um so that I also remember uh, reading something or watching something where after the gold was confiscated, the prices of gold, the value of gold also mysteriously went up once it was in possession of the government. So part of the reason for the, the end of the gold standard was so that the government could create more money and inflate away the value of the currency. So, um, so the, uh, relative to the gold standard, we've had higher inflation uh, under central banks. We've had more, uh, well, 
the the volatility of the value of the dollar has been about the same. Um, and so you'd think that they, like one of the reasons that the Federal Reserve gives is that they're, they're just better at, than the gold standard at managing the money supply, that they're going to prevent booms and busts. Uh, but that's not actually mm-hmm. what the research shows. Um, what the research shows that, is that the rate of inflation has been much higher under the Federal Reserve uh, after leaving the gold standard and after leaving Bretton Woods, and that the volatility really hasn't declined very much. Um, But also the predictability is worse. And so it used to be the case on the gold standard that the price level was stable for a century for a very long term. And so businesses could make plans and make long-term investments because they knew the prices were going to stay about the same. Um, And that's no longer true. Prices are constantly increasing, and it's very difficult for businesses to tell, are they going to go up by a little bit in the next 10 years, or are they going to go up by a lot? And so we used to have the case where businesses would make very long-term investments, um, sometimes 50 or 100 years. Uh, uh, businesses would issue 100-year bonds and make very long-term plans, and we just don't see that anymore because people can't predict what price levels are going to be in the future. Um, and the Fed says, well, we're going to use that and we're going to tame the business cycle. But that's not really true either. The average rate of GDP growth has been lower under the Federal Reserve, especially since leaving Bretton Woods. Um, and it's been slightly less volatile, but it's not really clear whether that has to do with monetary policy or not. So even people, even though yeah. the central bank will say that they're going to do a better job than the gold standard, the research doesn't really support that conclusion. So you just said that the Fed said that they could tame the business cycle. And this is a thought that has come up to me in so many ways on a macro scale, because you look at things like it comes back to the Inflation Reduction Act. Like we can tame the weather. We can tame the cycles of weather. We can tame all of these natural cycles, the business cycle, you know, respiratory viruses, whatever. We won't go there. But, you know, there's there are so many things now that it's, it seems like there's just this... Um, this um, tendency to move towards more and more and more top-down kind of centralization mm-hmm. um, and authority and control yeah. to, to, to control these natural cycles. So, um, so it could be, in theory, that the central bank is better at managing the economy, that they can calm down the boom and bust cycle and make it uh, a little bit less volatile. Um, But the research doesn't really support that, and especially the more recent research since the 1980s. And so there was, in the early post-World War II period up till about 1980, some evidence that actually the central bank had done a good job. I mean, the the 50s and the 60s were basically good periods. In the later 60s and the 70s, we started getting a lot of inflation. But even in the 1980s, some economists were still saying, you know, the Fed's done a pretty good job, and we've kind of figured this out by now. However, that Mm -hmm. research all changed in the mid-1980s, largely due to some studies that were uh, published by Christina Romer. Christina Romer was formerly the director of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, so hardly a partisan um, free market economist. And what she found was that the reason people thought that the economy was better with the Fed was that they were looking at the wrong data from the pre-Fed period. It turns out we need price data to study the, the pre-Fed period, and the 
Prices that were most readily available were commodity prices, which are known to be excessively volatile. And so that's a problem because the way we calculate real GDP is we look at the nominal GDP number that we see in the real world, and we subtract out inflation in order to get the real number of actual stuff that was produced. Not just prices going up, but actually more physical stuff being produced. And so if our inflation number is excessively volatile, it's going to make the real GDP number look volatile as well. And what she found was, if she went back and looked at a better measure of prices, that the volatility went away and the volatility of real GDP before the Fed actually was much lower than what pre people thought. And so her papers found that, and, and this is a quote, the stability under the Federal Reserve was simply a figment of the data. And if we use the correct data, the pre-Fed period was actually much more stable than we realized. And so since she wrote those papers in the, in the mid-1980s, there have been a number of follow-ups and many other papers that confirm this finding that if we look at the best data from the pre-Fed period, that the gold standard before the Fed actually produced a very stable economy with stable prices and not a lot of inflation, and that the boom and bust cycle was actually not better on the Fed, that it was, that it was a lot more stable on the gold standard than economists actually believe. And so this is something that's known to economic historians and some monetary economists, but it's not widely known to most economists. And so this is one of the reasons that most economists can uh, continue to criticize the gold standard as being very volatile when most of the research actually finds, the recent research, finds that that's not actually the case, that the gold standard is actually a period of prosperity and relative stability compared to the fiat period under the Federal Reserve. So I want to actually ask you a little bit more on the gold standard, uh, but first I'd like to just go on a, a small little detour. And, and I want to know if there's a relationship between the Fed being created in 1913 and um, the 1933 executive order on gold by FDR. Like, was there, was, was that like a buildup that happened there where the Federal Reserve was created and there was just this kind of move towards centralization, which inevitably led to decoupling from the gold standard? Mm -hmm. Are there any theories yeah, about that? So that's a great question. You know, the way that we talk about the central bank today is that the Fed is here to stabilize the economy. But that was not always the goal. Uh, when the Fed was originally created, it actually had nothing to do with managing the money supply. It was intended to simply be a lender of last resort. The reason is that there had been a couple of bank crises uh, in the late 1900s and in 1907. And the, the idea at the time was that people thought, well, we need a, a government institution that can come in and help banks if they were failing. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't understood at the time, but now we have more research that finds that actually a lot of those bank failures were, were caused by regulations that were preventing them from diversifying and making safe investments and forcing them to be, take too much risk. And for that reason, countries like Canada that were very similar but didn't have those regulations had more stable banking systems. But people didn't know that at the time. They thought, well, this is a problem that the government needs to come in and fix. And so in the early days of mm. the Fed, it was really only intended to uh, provide uh, the amount of money that was needed by the economy. It was intended to replicate a gold standard, but then also be able to uh, be a lender of last resort if there were some kind of financial emergency. But of course, very quickly, within just a couple of decades, the Fed took on a larger and larger role um, and became more active in the economy. And by the time we get to 1933 and we have a downturn and we have banks failing, it was thought that the Fed really... Um, 
needs to come in and, and fix this. Of course, part of the Great Depression was that the Fed was supposed to bail out the banks and didn't, which turned a, a small recession into the Great Depression. And this is widely cited as most economists for being the, the real cause of the Great Depression, um, is that the Fed just didn't do the job that it had been given. Um, but then also wow. by FDR, he wanted, he wanted the Federal Reserve to be able to increase prices because, again, they, they believed that higher prices would be good for producers, good for farmers, and if we can increase prices, then we're going to fix the economy. Um, and they couldn't do that with the Fed on the gold standard, or at least they, they probably could have. They just didn't believe that, and it was easier for them to just go off the gold standard so that the government and FDR in particular could decide what prices would be. And FDR actually did just make up on whims what he thought the price of gold would be. Um, and thought that he could be able to fix the economy using that, but obviously that was not an effective method for fi fixing the economy. So it's it sounds like what you're describing here and what research has been showing is that the fiat system, which is manipulable, um, that you can actually play with it, that you can decide what to do with money, um, that you can stretch it, that you can shrink it, that this system is actually inferior to the gold standard system. Would you would you agree with that, or is there is that pretty much what you're saying? So th there's a large body of evidence that finds that discretionary monetary policy is uh, worse than constrained or rules based monetary policy. So when we when we let the central bankers decide day to day to do whatever they want with the money supply, they tend to make mistakes and they aren't consistent in their decisions as if they followed some kind of rule or if they were constrained in their behavior. And that's a problem because that's really important that, that not only that they make good decisions, but that people understand what the central bank wants to do because people are going to have to make long-term decisions. Businesses need to invest. Individuals need to decide, are they going to spend money? Are they going to save? And all those things have to do with what their expectations are about the price level. This is the same problem that we see today, that the Fed has become totally unpredictable and People a year or two ago would never have imagined that they would let inflation get this high, and yet that's what we have. And everyone is dependent on every single Fed decision. We have to worry and watch very carefully every single decision because we don't know what they're going to do. And so if they had a predictable policy, that would be better for Americans and better for the Fed. And so one way that they could have a more predictable policy is if they were constrained by the gold standard. You know, we had in 19, prior to 1933, but uh, between 1913 and 1933, we had a Federal Reserve that was at least constrained by the gold standard in the sense that they couldn't create too much money and too much inflation. Um, it turned out that they ended up creating too little in the Great Depression and not putting money into the economy when they should have. So that wasn't a, wasn't a perfect policy. But prior to 1913, there was no central bank, and the money was created purely by the free market. You know, it's funny, for mm -hmm. almost every other industry, economists would say that competition is the best thing that we can have. Should the government produce cars or cell phones or basketballs? No, of course not. We should have private producers that are creating and competing so that they can improve their products over time. But for some reason, in the area of monetary policy, economists almost unanimously believe we should have a monopoly and that that monopoly should belong to the government. And so this is a pretty strange situation 
prior to the Federal Reserve, we, we did have a market-based system. We had miners that were private producers of gold that responded to supply and demand. When the demand for money was high, they could earn profits by producing more, and they would go get the more costly parts of the mine and dig out the gold there. And when the value of the dollar fell, they would earn less by producing new gold. And so they wouldn't go into the costly parts of the mine. They would only pr produce from the cheaper parts. And so they, they responded to supply and demand just like any other business. And there was a second layer that banks would hold gold and create dollars redeemable for gold, and they too had to respond to supply and demand. The banks couldn't more issue more money than people wanted to de demand. They couldn't create inflation the way that a central bank can today by just injecting it into the, into the economy. And so that system, the private market-based system, appears to have been uh, very stable over time. And the evidence that we have from the gold standard shows that it was, it was in many ways the same or better than the results that we're getting under central banking. Um, I was thinking about, I was speaking with Rachel Ferguson, Dr. Rachel Ferguson yesterday about something completely separate, but she brought up Hayek and um, this tenet of classical liberal thought. And it really relates to what you're saying here. And um, she was reiterating what Hayek had said, which was basically the more complex and disparate a system, you know, the more vast it is, the, the more people are involved with it, the more you need to have decentralized uh, decisions, uh, the less you need to have a bunch of very far away experts who are making the decisions for everybody else. But essentially, that's kind of what the Federal Reserve is, is that, you know, it's these experts that are at a very high level that are very far away from the rest of the people who are dealing with their day-to-day -day lives and, and the outcomes of this kind of money manipulation. That's right. The, the Federal Reserve is a central planner. And Hayek opposed that. Hayek opposed going off the gold standard. He said, you know, I'm skeptical that our experts actually have the information that is necessary to be able to manage this uh, money supply for the entire economy. Um, once they were off of the gold standard, he still believed that they should not have the ability to make discretionary decisions, that it would be better if they followed some kind of rule. Uh, he said that they should mm -hmm. have a, a stable rate of increase in the, uh, the nominal growth in the economy. And so he basically was describing what we would now in today's terms called a nominal GDP target. He had that idea way before anyone even knew what, you know, just before we talked about things in terms of nominal GDP. But one of the, one of the most uh, favored policies today by a lot of economists is something that Hayek was talking about in 1933 without even realizing it. And then la later well, in his career, after the failures of the central bank in the 1970s and all the inflation and stagflation that we had in, in the 1970s, you know, Hayek went back to believing, look, we, we sh maybe even shouldn't have a central bank at all. He, he wrote a couple of papers, uh, the denationalization of money and competition and currency, um, I name something like that that you know potentially we can have private market forces that are going to constrain uh, better than a central bank does because you know even though he favored having some kind of rules based policy it was just impossible to to get the central bank to follow that kind of behavior. Yeah, well, there's a very big difference between rules based policy and you know just making decisions kind of on the fly. <laughs> 
It's right. a very, very different situation. Um, so, you know, the gold standard, let's say, or that kind of system, let's say, you know, um, there was no central bank or we would return to a gold standard or something like that. I mean, um, what would that even look like? Is that something that's even possible? Yes. Yeah, so at least theoretically, we could go back to a gold standard today. We could, we could certainly go back to a central bank managed gold standard, um, even without ending the Fed. You know, the, the pre-Fed, pre-1913 period was all private, uh, private producers of gold, all managed by supply and demand. But from 1913 to 1933, we had a Federal Reserve managed gold standard. And we could go back to that right now. There are a couple of papers that look at the amount of gold that the Federal Reserve owns, or at least says it owns. Um, and they find that, that that would be enough to go back to the gold standard today. It was actually more, um, we have more gold today as a percentage of dollars than they actually had, uh, or similar to what they had in the 1930s. And so we have enough to support a gold standard today. Um, it's possible that the president could come out and, and just say, uh, by executive order, we're going back on a gold standard. You know, we went off it in 1933. And so we could potentially go back on the gold standard today. The president could come out and say, as of tomorrow, all U.S. dollars are redeemable for gold. And so we have the ability to switch back to that right now. Now, it might not have really some of the same advantages that we had in 1933. So, for example, at that time, all other countries were on a gold standard. And so one of the big benefits of the gold standard is that it made international trade very easy because we basically had fixed exchange rates. If, if every country's on the gold standard, then there's a, a mm -hmm. defined rate of exchange between their currencies. And that was a big benefit for international trade. Um, another problem is the expectation when you were on a gold standard is that you were going to stay on a gold standard and prices would remain stable for very long periods. In fact, the governments occasionally went off the gold standard for short times. In the United States, we went off the gold standard for the War of 1812. We went off the gold standard for the Civil War so that the government would have the ability to create a little bit of extra money during the war to make sure that they win the war. But the expectation mm -hmm. was always that after the war, we would go back on the gold standard. And that is, in fact, what happened in those cases. There was some extra money printed during the wars, but then the price level inflated during the wartime and went back down afterwards because people believed and understood that the government would be committed to a gold standard. It's not clear yeah. that that would happen if we went back on the gold standard today. I think people would worry that it was a political stunt. They would worry about the central bank being able to commit to a policy because it's been pretty clear that they have not been able to commit to a policy lately. And so it, have commitment issues. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it seems like even, even though that policy is possible in theory, um, it's not clear whether it would have the same benefits today as it had in the pre-Fed period. Well, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. So, you know, nobody is on the gold standard now, you know. But um, here's another thought that's just I'm thinking of right now, a fresh new thought here, is that after this all happened, shortly afterwards, you had probably some instability, right, and some kind of fighting over currency um, internationally, and then you have World War II. Yeah, that's right. So the... so. 
In the 1930s, when we went off the gold standard, there continued to be debate and lawsuits for years afterwards. And there was also uh, internationally discussion about what the other countries would do. A, a lot of people for years, maybe even decades, thought we would go back onto the gold standard. I think one, even after World War II, you know, a decade later, there was some, still some discussion about whether we could go back to a gold standard at that time. Um, and so there, there were certainly problems The at, at the macro level level, there are um, discussions about whether there was a lot of macro uncertainty created. Um, one of the things is that the policy of the Fed prior to going off the gold standard was not good, you know, and so potentially, so maybe maybe going off the gold standard was in the short term better uh, because it created a, a slightly better policy for a little while, but definitely there were problems for businesses that didn't want to invest. There were many lawsuits over whether th things could be paid in gold. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, whether the U.S. was able to do this or not, um, and so there was a lot mm -hmm. of turmoil uh, from going off the gold standard. And, you know, it's possible that if we went back on one, we may see some of those same kind of effects. Yeah. Um, actually, this is um, bringing me to going backwards on AIER's archives and reading about that because uh, some of the writers at that time are writing about, you know, uh, the rise of, of these of these dictators and what it's going to look like and thinking that war is imminent and really tying that in uh, with all of the economic instability. Uh, so I think that that could be something really interesting. Like I certainly want to go back and, and read that now after this discussion. And I suggest that for our viewers as well. So then you don't, you don't seem to think that it would be a good idea then to return to a gold standard today, even if we could. So I think it's possible that we could return to a gold standard right now, and, and maybe that would create benefits for the economy. It certainly would provide a constraint on the central bank. Um, but I think there are probably easier constraints. I, th I think going back to gold standard is highly, highly unlikely politically, partly, again, because so many economists doubt it and, and haven't read the research on it and are not familiar with the benefits. Uh, but politically, too, it's very hard to get anything changed about the Federal Reserve. They have a lot of political power, and they're highly resistant to change. Um, and so even just getting something like a regular monetary rule that they would have to follow, or potentially right now there's a discussion about whether they should have a single mandate. They currently have two goals assigned by Congress of low employment and low, uh, low unemployment and low inflation. And that's led to a lot of problems. Potentially they should only be focused on inflation and not unemployment. Um, but the, but even those small changes are, are very difficult. And so I, I don't think it's likely that we'll switch back to a gold standard right now. Um, even if we could, I think that there's another policy that, that would be that that could be coupled with that would really be more important. And that's freedom to choose. Monetary freedom, I think, is probably the best policy that if people wanted to switch back to a gold standard, they could. If people wanted to use crypto or another currency, they could. Um, and then that itself would put a constraint on the central bank that they wouldn't be able to create inflation if they wanted people to continue using dollars. I mean, certainly most Americans mm -hmm. would continue to use dollars, um, but I think a lot of them would 
look into other alternatives. And especially if the Fed continue to be irresponsible, that would be a big incentive for people to be trying out different types of money, trying out gold instead, trying out cryptocurrency, and that maybe one of those currencies mm-hmm. could potentially take over. And so to me, giving people a choice and allowing them to have monetary freedom would potentially be the best policy. Great. Well, you know what? I think that that's a perfect way to end this discussion on a high note. Um, Unless you have anything else that you'd like to let our listeners know, I thank you so much for your time, Tom. This was great. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I think we I think we covered everything, right? I, I think we pretty much did. So, well, there's a lot more to cover in the future. Right, absolutely. And again, we could, you know, but but uh, I think that this is a great chat for today. So thank you so kindly. Yeah, thanks very much. 